Hello, everybody. Wouldn't it be lovely if you had another episode of Before the Downbeat? Well, guess what? You do. And it's our penultimate episode. And I am your faithful ginger, Mackenzie. And I'm joined by the Higgins to my Eliza, the John Adams of Canadian theater, the B. Arthur of Canada, the director extraordinaire, the woman who could have danced all night. It is Autumn Smith. Hello. I could have spread my wings and done a thousand things. I'm just mm. going to say a million. Hello, yes. everybody. How hello, hello. are we? I feel like it's been a hot minute. It has. Well, I mean, well, I mean, you've been yeah. away directing Rent, so Jessica stepped in for Legally Blonde, which was a hoot yeah. and a half. Autumn, what are we doing today for our penultimate episode? Well, we decided to go back into the musical theater classics and pull out mm. the beautiful nugget that is My Fair Lady. Oh, wouldn't it be lovely? And Autumn, this was your pick. Sure was. So why, Autumn? What made this your pick? Because I chose Camelot. When we originally went to the Learner and Locanon, I was like, I got Camelot. You were like, you can have it. I'm taking my fair lady. It's interesting. Now that we're talking about it, I'm I'm actually finding my way through. I think it's because it's interesting. It has so much to do with voice, right? The whole Mm. piece about, you know, her shifting her voice, but in that Mm. she also finds her voice and reclaims Mm -hmm. her voice and strengthens her voice because she's never been given the opportunity to do so because of her class. Mm. So I think she is empowered. And I think Mm -hmm. she brings that empowerment back to the people that she knows and loves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's why I chose her. Love it. Love it. Love it. And Autumn, what are your experiences with it? Did you perform songs from this? Never. Have you directed it? Nope. Nope. Neither. Neither. I have neither performed it nor directed it. Would you want um, to direct it? Yes. I would. Because I think it's very complicated. I think it's a complicated musical. All of their musicals seem to have mm-hmm. these complicated male figures, right? King Arthur, yeah. King Arthur, Higgins, yeah. yeah. They're they're very. They struggle a lot, and in Huge that, struggle. there's also there's also you know privilege and class seem to be very prevalent in their work, which is mm-hmm. fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. And this one, of course, because the original was penned by George Bernard Shaw, yes, fellow Irishman, and love, love the man. So you know, 
yeah, I think it's I think it's great, and it, it would further my love affair with uh, the city of London. Yes, and it basically starts in my most favorite place in the world, is Covent Garden. Mm, all the flowers, the cacophony, the cacophony of Covent Garden. Mm-hmm. It is majestic, even now. But back then, it would have been more so. Like very mm-hmm. Victorian, Victorian times, it would have been spectacular. So mm-hmm. for me, My Fair Lady is very much about London and, you know, Mayfair and, mm-hmm. you know, society and, you know, how the other half lives and experience mm-hmm. in that, feeling displaced in that. And mm-hmm. interesting how she finds her voice through being displaced. Yes. You and know? It, it, it's the fact she can't go back at the end. She, she no. can't go back to her, like, she's she too knows far too. removed. Yeah, she knows. She, she, she knows too much. Mm-hmm. And in that, she becomes a little bit of a trapped bird, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So does she though? I mean, I mean, we, we will discuss the ending of this musical because it is fascinating. I will say though, for me, mm-hmm. I came to this piece through the classic TCM channel one weekend afternoon when they were playing the film. Sure. And so classics. Uh, oh yeah, oh yeah. It was. It's a classic. Audrey Hepburn. Rex Harrison, all the way. And then I knew the song I'm Getting Married in the Morning because that was on like one of my Broadway classic CDs. Classic it's got song. to be on your playlist. Oh, you better believe it is. It's on um, It's on the water cutting playlist. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. We will talk about that song, Autumn Smith. You know we will. <laughs> yeah. So that's... Yeah, I everyone. <laughs> Tell now. You ever believe it's in my top three somewhere? Oh, it's no. so good. But then I will say the song I probably knew you almost probably if not the same or more is I could have danced all night because it was a very popular choice at the Kiwanis Music Festival. Oh. There's always one girl who got up in a white nightgown and sang the song, even though it's funny. Until I rewatched the movie, for some reason in the back of my head, I had it remembered where I thought she sang the song when she gets home from the ball. Not when she is just had her breakthrough in with, with Reigns in Spain. I totally misremembered where that song came. So when I was watching the film this week to get ready, I went, did they move the song for the film? I was like, nope, it's the same spot it is on stage. It's right after Reigns in Spain. Mm-hmm. Such mm-hmm. a weird where spot. Where they dance. Yes. Where they dance and dance and dance. And she feels elated from... Mm-hmm overcoming something yes it's the it's the classic you know trying to climb the ladder out of mm-hmm. one's class and class yeah. was class is very much still prevalent but mm-hmm. even then more so fascinating so yes i could have danced all night very popular kiwana song i was supposed to see the 2011 shop festival production well, with my grade drama class but i had to bow out because I was in co-op at the time. And so I couldn't miss more days of school because I'd already missed a bunch for the choir trip, competitions, and other things. So I was like, I got to make up my hours, guys. I can't take another day out of my co-op to go on a field trip. So I've never seen it go live. I think I've I've seen excerpts of it live. Mm -hmm. Many a community theater has done excerpts. (laughs) Um, I've never seen, like I've seen, of course I've seen the film thousands of times. Yeah. No, no, I don't think I've ever seen it live. Oh, this is interesting. I know. 
Either way. There we go. Autumn, give us a plot rundown of what is My Fair Lady about because there could be a few people in the world who don't know this classic story based on a play based on a myth. So simple. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? Ready. Picture it. Covent Garden. A flower girl outside St. Paul's. Not St. Paul's Cathedral, but St. Paul's Covent Garden. Very different. Mm Mm-hmm. She is selling flowers and she's got a very thick Cockney accent. And Henry Higgins, an erudite, arrogant professor of linguistics, <laughs> is walking out of Covent Garden Opera House and he comes upon this woman speaking her Queen's English in a, in a horrific way. And basically he says, I can make you into a lady. I can teach you the Queen's English the way it is supposed to be spoken. And he makes a bet with his friend, Colonel Pickering, that he can do it. And In six months. In six months, there is a time time limit. Embassy balls coming. And, uh, they have this little bet that uh, he can and cannot do it. Mm. And yeah, we cannot really discuss. Well, he succeeds. He succeeds. He takes her, he assimilates her into society. She goes to the Ascot. Very exciting. She goes to the ball. Come on, Bloomer, move your Bloomer. Uh, they, they have a, a love-hate, love relationship. And that is it. That is, <laughs> that is uh, the part. It has and one it of is- the most unique endings in an all-musical comedy. With her coming back and him just simply saying, Eliza, where are my damn slippers? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's an iconic ending. And then her I, walking out again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, it's problematic. I don't know. I don't know if it's problematic. We will have to discuss that ending because we'll get to it. I think there is. I think it's all in the way it's handled and directed. Like, but uh, it's all in your interpretation about how you handle their relationship and why she comes back like what is the reason like you have to make the reason for it and, and her coming back like what does it say yeah i i mean because she's she said she's gonna go see, um marry freddie but then she ultimately shows back up in his living room she does because he challenges her he challenges yes. her to be something that she More. never anticipated she could be. Yes. Freddie loves the heart and soul of her. Yeah. But, he but loves, he's a Ken doll. But no, he's not. He's he's naive. He's the he's the elite rich boy who's privileged who doesn't know any better. Mm-hmm. He's like, Oh, I just love you. You're so cute and sweet and oh, I've you know, I'll wait on under a street lab for you. <laughs> that's love I have nothing else to do with my day mm-hmm. except stand on Rose Street and wait for you oh, God. I'm sorry. We, we will get to that moment trust me we'll talk about it so not interesting anyway mm-hmm. the, the piece the piece the other reason why I'm intrigued by is that it's based on a George Bernard Shaw play Pygmalion mm-hmm. which is based on a Greek myth by Pygmalion. Ovid by Ovid Mm-hmm. we love 
We do. That's um, how we met. Avi brought us together. I know. Anyway, it, this kind of segues into my my other bits. Yes, tell us who was on the production team. Okay, so the the piece is based, as I said, on Pygmalion by George mm-hmm. Bernard Shaw. Mm-hmm. I love George Bernard Shaw, Irishman, wrote prolifically about gender issues, about the class divide. Mm-hmm. And was he, he wrote more than sixty plays, including his major works such as Man and Superman, Pygmalion, and Saint Joan, one of my mm-hmm. favorite plays of all time. They made a um, he also has a, a whole festival named after him in Canada called the Shaw mm-hmm. Festival. Right. Well, Stratford took Shakespeare, so they took Shaw. Lots of people do Shakespeare, but Shaw is different. It's uh, Shaw is very demanding and. Mm-hmm. He wrote contemporary satire and historical allegory, mm. which I think is an interesting composition of things. And in 1925, was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. Mm. So a little bit about Pygmalion while we're here. So the myth, Pygmalion fell in love with one of his sculptures, mm. which then came to life. It's kind of like a Frankenstein story. <laughs> In all, in all honesty, yeah. the general idea of the myth was a popular subject for Victorian era playwrights, including one of Shaw's influences, which was W.S. Gilbert, who wrote a successful play on it called Pygmalion in Galatia, and it was presented in 1871. And then, so Shaw took this tale, morphed it into his own version of it, and mm-hmm. then Lerner and Lowe morphed it into their own version. So we're back to our friends, Lerner and Lowe, who we talked about at length in our Camelot. Go back episode. and listen to it. It's a great episode. It's a good episode. So uh, again, they were a delicious combo that worked mm-hmm. prolifically together. Um, they were responsible for Broadway hits, such as this one, My Fair Lady, Camelot, Brigadoon, and Paint Your Wagon. Mm-hmm. And they worked a lot with Director Mossart, we also talked about. He directed Camelot. He directed Camelot. He directed that. But he also worked in collaboration with George S. Kaufman mm-hmm. and wrote with Edna Ferber as well. Mm-hmm. Kaufman and Hart teamed up to do hits like You Can't Take It With You and The Man Who Came to Dinner. Highly successful American. Very good. Um, he wrote things uh, with characters based on important people like Noel Coward, Harpo Marx, mm-hmm. and Lawrence. He wrote several musicals and reviews. And of course, he did this and a lot. So phenomenal. The last person I'm going to mention in my little foray into our creative team is Hanya Holm, who is the choreographer. And Hanya is known, this was really interesting actually, as one of the big four founders of American modern dance. Dancer, choreographer, and a dance educator. She was invited by dance director Martha Hill to be one of the founding artists at Bennington College in 1934, along with Martha Graham, Charles Weidman, and Doris Humphrey. They were the We've all heard of Martha Graham. But isn't that interesting? She choreographed for Broadway, 
ballet, like everywhere. She did My Darling Ida, The Golden Apple, My Fair Lady, Camelot, and Anya. Mm-hmm. She also did a television musical adaptation of Pinocchio. And she did a lot in the fields of concert dance and musical theater. She also did Tragic Exodus. They too are exiles, dance of work, and play and dance sonata. Wow. So that is our creative team, darling. Take her away. Plow through that like that. Well, it was easy because we already touched base on some of that. It's true. I mean, this is kind of unique where... Where, like, with Rogers and Hammerstein, we're moving forward through their canon. With my, with Winter and Lowe, we're moving backwards through their canon. Backwards. Where we started with their kind of big cumulating piece of Camelot. Now we're doing the most famous piece, My Fair Lady. And I can give a preview that in season five, we do have another of theirs on the schedule. So, yes, production history wise, the, <laughs> the work on this began. In the 1930s, when film producer Gabriel Pascal acquired the rights to produce film versions of several of George Bernard Shaw's plays, including Pygmalion. However, Shaw, having had a bad experience with The Chocolate Soldier, a Viennese operetta based on his play Arms Arms and the Man, refused permission for, for Pygmalion to be adapted into a musical. In 1940, Gertrude Lawrence, having freshly had a great run of doing the play Pygmalion, where she played Eliza, wanted to do a musical adaptation with her friend, Noel Coward, doing the book and score. However, Bernard Shaw turned them down and said, no way. So it wasn't until after his death in 1950 that work really kind of amped up into high gear for making this into a stage musical. The first public mention of this work it was in the gossip columns in 1951 with Mary Martin being attached to the project following her successful run in South Pacific. Uh, uh At the time, the musical was to be adapted by Rogers and Hammerstein, but they ultimately declined to pursue the project further due to conflicts in adapting the source material. The theater guild who owned the stage rights at the time then decided to partner up with uh, Pascal in adapting a version of it for the stage that would ultimately become a film. So they then approached Frank Lesser, who had just done the music and lyrics for the hit Guys and Dolls. Oh. But Lesser declined because he was busy with other projects. The producing team then approached Lerner and Lowe due to their success with Painter Wagons and Brigadoon. One condition Lerner and Lowe had was that Mary Martin had to play Eliza because at the time, they felt her involvement would ensure the musical would be successful. Basically, they felt, get a big name like her after South Pacific, it will ensure that people come and see our show. Okay. That was the thought. Yeah. In May of 1952, work was underway, and during this early process, Mary Martin and her husband demanded to hear some of the music, and after a presentation where they heard the song On the Street Where You Live, Mary Martin told her husband, Richard Halliday, that those dear boys have lost their talent. Mm-hmm. Oh. Not very nice. Other alternatives Lerner and Lowe were considering for Eliza during this early writing process were Judy Garland, Deanna Durbin, and Dolores Gray because they were partnered with Pascal in Hollywood. So there was the whole thing of do it on mm-hmm. film, get a big name on get stage, do it on film. 
I can't see Judy Garland doing My Fair Lady. That just does not mix right with me. Um, but either way, they really wanted Mary Martin for the project. So they were bound determined to get her on board. For the role of Higgins at the time, they were wanting either Noel Coward or George Sanders. But neither of them were moving big on the project. They heard more of the music and had their Eliza signed on. So then in October of 1952, Leonard and Lowe departed the project as they were having royalty disputes with the Theater Guild and Mary Martin's team. So they leave. Lerner also stated that the reason for leaving was that they couldn't figure out the book of the musical as the play, Pygmalion, violated several key rules for constructing a traditional musical comedy, which was that the main story, Pygmalion, was not a love story. There was no subplot or secondary love story. And there was no place in the source material for a typical large uh, musical ensemble. So they were like, we out. Uh, following the departure, the Theatre Guild and Pascal went about pursuing other composers and lyricists, including Richard Alder and Jerry Ross, who were best known at that time for writing The Pajama Game, which I don't know at all, but apparently it's a very popular musical. But they, all, they also approached Leonard Bernstein and Adolph Green. Pascal was very eager about potentially getting Bernstein on board and met with him twice, but nothing came about this pursuit. During this hiatus time, uh, Gabriel Pascal died and Chase Manhattan Bank were put in charge of Pascal's estates, as well as the musical rights for Pygmalion. So, in October of 1954, uh, so two years later, Lerner and Lowe returned to the project, having now seen Pascal's 1938 film adaptation. Surprised I haven't watched it in 52, but that's besides the point. This time, however, they partnered with Herman Levin, who was now the acting producer due to Lerner and Lowe's previously finding it difficult to work and to go uh, with the Theatre Guild because they're having those royalty negotiation problems. So basically, they were like, we're partnering up with somebody else to produce this piece, not the Theatre Guild. The Theatre Guild did attempt to get back on board with the project with the help of Mary Barton's husband, Richard Halliday. The situation came to a head in early 1955 when Lerner and Lowe did another presentation of their work for Martin Halliday Levin and the project's designers who Levin had hired. After the presentation, Halliday and Martin both expressed that they were still dissatisfied and felt the material that was presented didn't offer Martin enough opportunities. Martin also said in later memos that she didn't get any lift out of the songs for Eliza. Due to this and their lukewarm feelings, Halliday and Martin declined to sign on to the project and ultimately departed it. During this time, the right negotiations were still underway and ultimately came down to be between Lerner and Lowe's estate and Metro Golden Meyer, so MGM. Oh. MGM's executives found out who they were competing against and called Lerner and Lowe to discourage them from, from challenging the studio for the rights. Following the call, Lowe's retort to the team was, we will write the show without the rights. And when the time comes for them to decide who is going to get them, we will be so far ahead of everyone else that they will be forced to give them to us. <laughs> so, right? It's a My devil. Yes. So, so for five smart. months, Lerner and Lowe wrote the book and the music, taking heavy inspiration from the 1938 film screenplay. They used several scenes that Shah had written specifically for the film version of Pygmalion, including the embassy ball sequence and adapt the final scene of the 1938 film rather than the original ending of Shaw's play. 
They gave Mr. Doolittle a more integral role in the plot of the show and made the character of Freddy more attractive and admirable so he could pose a more believable threat to the Higgins and Eliza relationship. <sighs> they set about moving many scenes as possible out of Higgins' study and into the open spaces of London. They adapted Eliza's incident at the Ascot from the 1935 German film version of the play. There was quite a debate regarding where to place the intermission, as it was Lerner's initial idea to end the first act with Eliza departing for the ball. But this concept was ultimately changed for the first act to end with Eliza's success at the ball. So it ends with her triumph. So, but they ultimately went back to Lerner's original idea for the film. Because if you watch the film, the intermission comes right when they depart for the ball. So Lerner ultimately got his way at the, in the end. There was a song that was scheduled for the second act that was going to be between Eliza and Higgins. That was going to be basically all about love, discussions about concepts of love. Uh, they felt this was too generic and they cut this concept and got rid of the song. The song I Could Have Danced All Night was a later addition to the script, replacing a song called Shy. So meanwhile, while they're doing all their writing and rewriting, you have the producer Levin over here who is working on hiring the rest of the creative team and cast. Levin first hired Moss Hart as director and Hanya Holm as the choreographer. And then between January and March of 1955, Levin, Lerner, and Lowe began talks, auditioned, and formally offered the role of Eliza to Julie Andrews. On March 31st, 1955, Andrews officially signed on to the project with her earning $1,000 per week for the first two years of her contract, uh, receiving second star billing, performing on the cast album for $1,000 per day, being permitted a personal dresser, and being given eight weeks vacation during the first year of her contract. Mm -hmm. Also in March, Levin went to London and secured Rex Harrison for the role of Higgins after Noel Coward officially declined the part. Harrison's contract included a guarantee of six weeks of employment and a salary of $3,000 per week, 10% of the box office gross, and first star billing. All hail the patriarchy. Yep. (laughs) <laughs> I knew you were gonna have a comment on that. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, you also have to remember that this is a very young Julie Andrews who hadn't had a starring role before. I don't care. She's carrying the show. Well, I mean, they still. I mean, they kind of put the carrying on Rex Harrison because he was first billed. So they kind of assumed Higgins was the starring role, not Eliza. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure, we'll make it about him. Right yeah. Idea. yeah, yeah, yeah. So also, while Levin was in London, he cast Stanley Holloway as Eliza's father, Alfred P. Doolittle. Mm-hmm. So with all this work done, the bank granted Lerner and Lowe the musical rights. Then throughout this year of development, the title of the show was still in flux, with it typically being referred to as My Lady Liza. It was Lerner who preferred the title My Fair Lady because it was one of Shaw's provisional titles for Pygmalion, and was the final line of every verse of the nursery rhyme, London Bridge is Falling Down. My fair lady. Yep, you got it. How interesting. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that little tie-in. Right? Right? So then rehearsals were scheduled to begin on January 3rd, 1956. But there was an issue with Andrew's arrival date as she was planning to spend the holidays and New Year's with her family and young children in England, meaning she would arrive back in New York for rehearsals only one day before rehearsals began. Andrews insisted on not returning to New York before the new year, as she had just spent almost a year away from her family on Broadway, and and she was likely going to spend another year apart from them. So she was like, yeah, so there's a bit of a dispute back and forth about this, because Holloway and Harrison had arrived from England prior to the new year, like on December 28th, they'd shown up in the city. So they were like, we want you here early so we can kind of get ahead a bit, you know, before first day of rehearsal. But she was like, nope, I'm not doing it. And Andrews' agent had to intercede on her behalf and she arrived in New York as planned on January the 2nd. So there you go. Rehearsals began on January the 3rd and the first read through went well with a script at this point containing more of Shaw's original dialogue than ultimately would be used in the final draft of the script. Everyone was quite enthusiastic following the read through except for Harrison as he felt Higgins disappeared in Act 2 so Lerner and Lowe added the song, A Hymn to Him, which was supposedly based on a real rant Harrison gave to Lerner while they were having lunch one day and discussing their past failed marriages. The song was written and added on the eighth day of rehearsals. Throughout the early rehearsals, Harrison would repeatedly request his copy of Pygmalion as published by Penguin Publishing. Anytime he felt the script wasn't sounding right, he wanted to refer to the original source text. So, so he would keep saying, where's my penguin, basically. And some assistant would bring him up his copy. Oh, uh, this began to uh, annoy Lerner so much so that he bought Harrison a stuffed penguin from the local taxidermist. And the next time Harrison asked for his copy of the book, Lerner presented him with the stuffed penguin. Like a real penguin? Yeah, like a stuffed penguin. Like a, like a stuffed taxidermy penguin. My God. Yes. So apparently Harrison found this quite funny and laughed and never mentioned his penguin book again. But he did end up keeping the penguin, like the stuffed penguin, in his dressing room during the entire Broadway run. (laughs) Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you have, due to Andrew's lack of experience leading a major musical, she struggled with the role of Eliza to the point where Hart uh, decided to do an exclusive two-day rehearsal with just Andrews so they could beat out all the elements of Eliza from her entrances to her screams to her ultimate transformation into a lady. When the rest of the cast returned on Monday, they found a much more confident and secure Julie Andrews. It's like he became Pygmalion himself. Yes, exactly. Sculpted her into his masterpiece. Right, exactly, exactly. Right. Now, on the, and then on the other end of the spectrum, so you have Harrison doing penguins. You got Julie Andrews kind of struggling to find her way. Then you got Stanley Holloway, then started to act out as he felt as though he was being neglected by Hart oh, rehearsals. God. So how, right? what is wrong with you? Just be in the process. Well, here you go. So this is the best thing. So when Holloway brought his frustrations to Hart, Hart responded by saying to him, Now look, Stanley. I'm rehearsing a girl who's never played a major role in her life and an actor who has never sung on stage in his life. You've done both. If you feel neglected, it is a compliment. (laughs) I love them. Seriously. (laughs) Check yourself at the door and just come in and do the work. 
What is that? <laughs> it's not about you. I hate to break it to y'all. That's not about you. It's about the work. Did you write the work? Oh, wait, you did it. Shut up. Well, it gets even better. So after a month of rehearsing no. in New York, the show moved to New Haven where they began to do previews. Prior to the previews, Harrison admitted to Hart that he was intimidated by the orchestra due to his lack of singing experience. Hart's solution was to bring Harrison in for a private afternoon with the orchestra so he could get comfortable with them. However, it didn't solve the problem, and Harrison insisted he would not perform that night. So the performance was almost canceled until the house manager, who had been contending with audiences who were lined up outside in a snowstorm to see the show, came backstage and said if the performance was canceled because of Harrison's actions, he would ensure every audience member knew the reason for the cancellation. The fear of humiliation overshadowed Harrison's fears of the orchestra, and the performance ultimately happened. The performance started 40 minutes late, but by the end, the audience was enthralled and gave the cast a standing ovation. And let me guess, he didn't sing anyway because he doesn't know how to. He spoke some the whole bloody thing. Yeah, that's what he does. I've grown accustomed to the face. <laughs> just, just move forward. <laughs> it's not about you again. Diva. Diva. So Variety reviewed the show in New Haven and predicted that the show was going to be a smash hit. After New Haven, the show moved to Philadelphia where three songs were cut, Come to the Ball, sung by Higgins, a ballet sequence called Decorating Eliza, and Eliza's song, Say a Prayer for Me Tonight. The audience continued to receive the show positively. So the show then moves to New York and premiered on Broadway on March the 15th, 1956 at the Mark Hellinger Theater with the cast including Julie Andrews as Eliza Doolittle, Rex Harrison as Henry Higgins, Stanley Holloway as Alfred P. Doolittle, Robert Coote as Colonel Hugh Pickering, Kathleen Nesbitt as Mrs. Higgins, John Mitchell King as Freddie, and Philippa Bevins as Mrs. Pierce. The production received extremely positive reviews by critics and earned 10 Tony nominations, including Best Musical, Best Lead Actor, and Best Lead Actress for Harrison and Andrews, Best Supporting Actor for Coot and Holloway, Best Director for Hart, Best Choreography for Home, and Best Costume and Scenic Design. The production won six awards, including Best Musical, Best Director, Best Actor for Harrison, and Best Costume and Scenic Design. Nothing for Julie Andrews. So, the original cast recording was released on April the 2nd, 1956, and became the best-selling album of that year in the U.S. By the start of 1959, it was the largest grossing Broadway show of that time, with a gross of $10 million. Over the course of the Broadway run, the show transferred to the Broadhurst Theater, then the Broadway Theater. It closed on September 29th, 1962, after 2,717 performances. Wow. A record for that time. Mm -hmm. The show transferred to West End with Harrison, Andrews, Coop, and Holloway reprising their roles and it opened on April the 30th, 1958 at the Theatre Royal Drury Lane where it ran for five and a half years for 2,281 performances. Mm -hmm. 
The musical. Years. That's crazy. Right? Yeah. Long time. This one thing very popular. The musical was revived on Broadway in 1976, 1981, 1993, and 2018. And apparently, apparently, did a lot of work of really centralizing Elijah Struggle as as the main part of the, of, the, of that production versus Henry Higgins. The, uh, Henry, it's not about Henry Higgins. It's about well, Eliza. It's called My Fair Lady, not Gentleman. <laughs> Either way, so yes. The show was revived in the West End in 1979, 2001, directed by Trevor Nunn, and 2022. So, there you go. Basically, basically, the most recent version is is the transfer from the from the Broadway 2018. So, notable Elizas include Sally Ann Howes, best known for Chichi Bang Bang, Marty McCutcheon from EastEnders, uh-huh. Laura Michelle Kelly. And Laura Benanti. Then notable Higgins, you have Jonathan Price and mm-hmm. John Lithgow. Yeah, both of those are excellent. Yeah. Oh, and also Kelsey Grammer. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Then you have notable Mr. Doodles, including Norbert Leo Butts and Danny Burstein. And then notable Mrs. Higgins include Rosemary Harris. Uh, Diana Rigg, sorry, Dame Diana Rigg, mm-hmm. and Caroline Bloxon. She was in Star Wars. So there you go. There, there you go. So in 1964, there was a film adaptation with Harrison reprising his role as Higgins. The casting of Audrey Hepburn as Eliza created controversy among theater goers because Andrews by this point had become a well-regarded perfect Eliza Doolittle. And because Hepper was unable to sing the role and was ultimately dubbed by Marnie Nixon, they were like, why you bother casting me you can't sing the part? Because it's Audrey uh, Hepburn. Yeah. So the reason for this casting, though, was because studio head Jack L. Warner, the head of Warner Brothers, wanted a star with a great deal of name recognition. And since Andrews did not have any film experience, he deemed that the film would have more success with a movie star like Hepburn. And she went on to do Sound of Music. Well, before that, Andrews went on to star in Mary Poppins that same year, for which she won both the Academy Award and Golden Globe for Best Actress. So, no take more. that, Jack L. Warner. Lerner stated he disliked the film version of My Fair Lady, thinking it did not live up to the standards of Mossart's original direction. He also was unhappy with the casting of Hepburn as Eliza Doolittle, and that the film was shot entirely on the Warner Brothers' backlot, rather than, as he preferred, shot in London on site. Uh, despite the casting controversy, My Fair Lady was considered a major critical and box office success and won eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture of the Year, Best Actor for Rex Harrison, and Best Director for George Kirkor. So there you go. My final mm-hmm. note for production history is Columbia Pictures announced a new film adaptation was in the works in 2008. The film was to be directed by John Madden, and was shot on location in London with Emma Thompson writing the new screenplay. And at the time, the front runners for the roles of Eliza and Higgins were Colin Firth and Carrie Mulligan. Oh, yeah. there. Ultimately, for some unknown reason, the project was shelved. I don't know why. Autumn, let's get into our top three songs. Hey, you start. Oh, you you want me to start? start? All right. My number one is Show Me. Don't talk of stars burning above If you're in love, show me 
Hostage Show Me. It was like my number four. Okay, okay. Uh-huh. I like this because mm-hmm. it, 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 well, it's strong and it's forward and it, it lies in this it's Eliza's taking the reins of this moment. Unlike just you wait and act on, which is her just kind of mainly fantasizing about standing up for herself. Mm-hmm. This is where she full on takes her in and goes, Freddie, fuck off or show me. Like, step up to the plate and challenge me. Don't just write me love letters and stand under my lamppost. Like, I'm out here in the middle of the night alone mm-hmm. and you're and you're trying to, I wrote you another love letter. She's like, no. She's like, looking for a way out. She's looking for a way out of her own mind because yeah. she knows what she wants. Yes. And she wants a nicer version of Higgins. Yes. But he doesn't exist. No, she's exactly. She's got the clocky sap. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't challenge her at all? Yeah. Doesn't step up. Yeah. And then she's got this. All I have to say is, men, am I right? <laughs> You've got them both yeah. exemplified here. You've got schlocky, sappy, and mm-hmm. pain in the ass on yeah. the other side. Yeah. Where's the meeting in the middle? That's where you get me on them. I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Ladies, look at this fine human. Mackenzie Horner, yeah. bravo. Exactly. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But you know, I really like it because it really puts Freddie on his back legs in this moment. And you got to think in 1950, when this is like the era of I like Ike, women's places in the home with the poodle skirts. Oh, like gosh. it was so rare to have a character written like this, where you I mean, have to look at the source material. Mm-hmm. And Shaw was infamous for writing. Feminist, iconic character. Well, I mean, look at the character of the lady in Man of Destiny who puts Napoleon on his back legs. Yeah. Look um, at Joan. Look at St. Yeah, Joan. Exactly. Like, who else could tackle St. Joan? Exactly. Barbara in Nature Barbara. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Exactly. Brilliant feminist, you know. Exactly. Character. Yeah. And- he was, he was, it's interesting because mm-hmm. we talked a lot about Aaron's and Flaherty. Yes. And their writing, mm-hmm. um, you know, Ragtime mm-hmm. and Once on the Silent. And, and mm-hmm. was that okay? Is that mm-hmm. appropriating voice? But what did they do? They softened the blow. Mm-hmm. Not that blows need to be softened. Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous that we even have to have that conversation. <laughs> but to make, make that yeah. voice okay. Yeah. For the white, you know, erudite, elitist, mm-hmm. high-end, $200 mm-hmm. a ticket audience, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you have mm-hmm. Shaw doing the exact same thing, making strong female voices palatable because it's coming through the male lens. Yes. Yes. All right, that's fascinating. Stupid that it had to happen that way. But it did. And Lerner and Lowe adopted that for a lot. They did. And I mean, mean, this is kind of their early version of Guinevere, who's their next step up, right? Because Guinevere is very sexually forward in her wants in that musical. So I mean, this is a great kind of, once again, they're stepping up what they're doing. And I mean, I really think what's nice is that, because I'm sure Roger and Hammerstein would have written a very lovely Eliza. But it would have been a very different Eliza. I mean, we see kind of what their women are in their shows, right? I mean, you have Nellie Forbush, Carrie Pipperidge, 
Julie Jordan, Lori, like Maria, like they're all kind of very doty and nice women that do have struggle. I, I get it. They do have struggle with not the same way Lerner and Lowe write for women, where they really kind of give them some teeth. And I mean, even in the music, Mm-hmm. absolutely. And I mean, even in the music they give her in this moment, it's driving, like it's driving Freddie backward. It's like, show me, show me, like it's just it's hitting all the time. Now, show me, don't show me later. Don't, don't, talk, don't yeah. talk at all. Mm-hmm. Don't talk at all. Show me. Never do I ever want to hear another word. There isn't one I haven't heard. Here we are together in what ought to be a dream. Say one more word and I'll scream. Just show me. Like it's, like, it's such it's so up. explosive and really captures that internal frustration that she's letting out in this moment that's kind of being all built up from Higgins, right? Like Six months of living with Higgins is coming out on Freddy in this moment. It's interesting that we can accept that behavior from her because there's something feral about the lower classes. Mm, An upper class lady would never behave that way. Oh, goodness, no. Goodness, no. So it's kind of a, it's also kind of confronting classism Mm -hmm. and saying, Women can be this, mm-hmm. and all women mm-hmm. be this. Yeah, exactly. So, no, I really enjoyed this song. This is just such a great piece that really picks up Act Two and really gives Eliza a really strong voice, which is why I really like this show. Because, once again, Eliza has so many songs like this that are her fighting back repeatedly throughout this show. Well, she's not a typical optionary. No, no, exactly. No, you look at her in comparison to the rest of the females in the show. She's young. She's mm-hmm. the only young female. It's true. Mrs. Pierce has a little fight. I mean, all three of the women in this show have fight. Mrs. Pierce doesn't take anything from Higgins. She fights back on him. Is the one that calls him in and says, uh, you make sure she knows what she's signing up for. Don't she's just... also lower class. So she people is, don't but then even his mom. Different. But, he, but even Higgins' mom, Mrs. Higgins puts him in his place a number of times throughout the show. Yes, uh, she, she sides with Eliza. She sides with Eliza. She's his mother. Yes, exactly. So, so every every woman needs kind of this like explanation mm-hmm. for their feisting. Men can just be feisty. Yeah. But women need like, well, this one's lower class, so of course she's going to be bad. This one's my servant. Mm-hmm. Of course she's, oh, and my mother. My mother is always telling me what to do. Yeah. Right? It's interesting. Interesting. It is. It is. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's my number one. Show me. I like it. My number, I'm going to change my number one. Okay. My number one is now going to be I Could Have Danced. I could have danced all night. I could have danced all night. And still have made I could have spread my wings and done a thousand things I've never done before. I'll never know what made it so exciting. Why all at once my heart took flight. Did not make my list. No, dear. Fine. Fine. 
it's a nice song. I'll tell you why. Because it uh, it doesn't it wouldn't normally interest me. I know. After what it comes after, Mm. it is her success, and she's like, it's that moment of elation where she feels not othered anymore. Mm -hmm. She feels like she is accepted. Mm-hmm. Because she mastered some s- stupid linguistic thing, mm-hmm. but it was—it's a signal of possibility. Yes, and I think the elation that that possibility and hope can bring mm-hmm. does give us way, right? It does—it makes us take flight, and mm-hmm. I think there's something to that where she's just uh, in in. In awesome wonder of what she is capable of. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, no one's given her that before. No. Mm-hmm. No one's given her that opportunity. Yeah. The opportunity to be something other than what she was born into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's quite an extraordinary moment. Like, mm-hmm. it's just un, unabashed joy. Yes. You and know? I- yeah, and I mean, it's a really good example of that classic idiom in theater where if you can't speak, you sing because your emotions have gone so big. And this is exactly the example it of that. Which it's one of the she... only times I think it really works. Yes. Yeah, it's a true example of when you can't speak, you sing, right? It's that, oh. It's a great, it's a perfect oh. example of that, but. It's yeah. a beautiful song. I mean, it soars, right? I mean, it, they totally capture musically that soaring emotion of pride and excitement that she has in her, right? And then it's great because then you have the outside world being, it's time to go to bed. It's 3 a.m. It's after Like the servants are all kind of like below her, right? Silence her. Yeah, it's interesting that the servants are doing that. Well, she's ascending to the next level of lady of being a lady, and they're still on their level. So they're trying to bring her back down to earth, back down to reality. Mm-hmm. And she is ascending to another class above them at this point. She's had the breakthrough now that's going to allow her to yeah. make it to the next step that they will not have. And, so, and, and it's the fact that in that, it's 3am on them. And, like, well, and in that, there's kind of a tragedy to it. Mm-hmm. Like it's like, oh, you were the chosen one. Yeah. We live with him, and he never taught us this. Yeah, it's kind of sad. It is. There, there is a tragedy to it. No, but yeah. All right. Well, my number two Ooh. is I've grown accustomed to her face. Damn, 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 damn! I've grown accustomed to her face. She almost makes the day begin. I've grown accustomed to the tune. She whistles night and noon. 
Her smiles, her frowns, her ups, her downs are second nature to me now. Like breathing out and breathing in. I was serenely independent and content before we met. Surely I could always be that way again. And yet, I've grown accustomed to her looks, accustomed to her voice, accustomed to her face. That's my number two. It was my number one. But then oh. I'm like, no, I'm going to change it. I can't Love now it. put his song as number one. <laughs> I love this. I mean, it's pretty much the precursor to how to handle a woman in Camelot. Sure is. is. And it's, it's the journey of this piece that I really like. It really reflects the waves of thought one has when you're wrestling with your thoughts and emotions. It's very it's a great soliloquy. It's a fantastic soliloquy yeah. because you got Higgins ping pong between so many different things. Like at first, he's very possessive of Eliza, and you're like, Oh, I don't like you for this. But then he has the real realization when he's listening to that recording of her on the first day they met in his study. And you realize, oh, on some level, he does have love for her. And and, and he's missing. He just doesn't know how to love. He doesn't. He's never fully. No one's ever really gone. He's like the dorky kid, right? Mm-hmm. Who's who's never been picked mm-hmm. first or mm-hmm. liked for any of his yeah. qualities? So he's built up this armor, and she's yeah. got interesting yeah. that she is as much mm-hmm. of a sculptor as he is. Absolutely, because she sculpts his heart. Yes. Well, I you mean, know? you look at it. We're like, I mean, if you watch Bridgerton, you kind of know what goes on in their world of ascots and debutante balls. Where I guarantee he's saying the same women over and over again who are well spoken, well like well 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 boring, boring women. And he's boring. never been challenged. And what she does is she challenges him. And he finds love in that. And it's so beautiful well, that you watch him melt respect. in this song. Yeah. There's a mutual respect. I mean, you mm-hmm. think of like the ascot and the these mm-hmm. balls. It is he all- loves that he yeah. A performance. And here you have two incredibly genuine people mm-hmm. who have been lost in one way or another to society. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they meet. Mm-hmm. And they challenge each other in every possible way. Yeah. And it's annoying and irritating mm-hmm. and awesome. Yeah. It, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's fantastic. I love that song. Yeah, and I mean, the rhythm alone is fantastic because it really reflects the emotional state of what Higgins is going through. It, the, once again, it's just like Shakespeare gives you the rhythm in his text, Lerner and Lola giving you the rhythm of the mental working that's going on in Higgins' brain. And the music. Yeah, I'm going to say it's in the top five soliloquy songs. Easily, easily top five. Easy. This, and it's great payoff. Like, this song yeah. is great because after repeated songs where Higgins complains about women and living with them, he ultimately comes about saying how much he actually has enjoyed being changed by them. And, and, and the fact that now he can't, and, and that he wants to cohabitate. He misses having the other person in his life that's there every day. And it's a very human, right? Like it's a thing of, there's some people who challenge us to our teeth, right? Drive us up the wall, but then, but then they're out of our life and they go, oh, 
there was something about having you in my life that damn, 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 yes, it's fascinating, and and that's why this song I go, all people are like, oh, Higgins, he's a misogynist, he's horrible. I'm like, no, he's complicated. He's living. He, uh, first of all, he, like, I feel like his viewpoints are very much the male viewpoint of that time period of women should be seen and not heard. Men are the ruler, rulers of, of, the cl- of their class. Everything. And everything. Like, like, like well, everything. Mu- yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, I mean, he's a product of his environment. But then along comes this lady who totally 180s him. And he, and he accepts the outside woman as the person he wants to live with. Not some debutante that his mother would want him with. It's boring. Yeah. It's, boor- it's the same as Captain Von Trapp. Yes. Well, I mean, the Baroness, Baroness is boring. It's boring she's choice. Boring. She's she's an interesting choice. But she's she, she's fine. But she's a boring choice. There's no struggle yeah. in it. Yes. It's like people who like. It's funny. I I have this conversation with Sarah often about it. Must be incredibly dull to be really beautiful mm-hmm. because there's no struggle in that. Mm-hmm. What are we if we are not made of the struggles in which we go through on a daily, yes. you know, daily basis? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How boring must it be to be rich and pretty? Yeah. Who cares? Who cares? Who cares mm-hmm. for the Oscar winners? Who cares? It's not yeah. interesting. Yeah. You know, exactly. like, it's just, mm-hmm. we don't, like, mm-hmm. I don't want to watch House of Gucci. Who cares? Yeah. Is there death? Kill each other. Then it's <laughs> right. But it's not like it's so much more. It's so much more intriguing to watch the struggle of humanity. Yeah, that's why we have theater. Yes, people, people. All right, Autumn. What's your number three? Now that I've said about pretty people, <laughs> I'm going with the ascot. and stupid and accurate in its stupidity. Yes. Everyone who should be. But they nail it. They nail the armored privilege of the the bourgeoisie, like the upper class snooty, snooty, snooty. And the fact they're in black and white as well, like no color. No color. Exactly. And it costs Eliza, uh, and it's just genius. The moment that it's, it's come on, Bloomer, move your Bloomer ass. <laughs> so good, and Higgins loves it. And I mean, I mean, Higgins' reaction isn't like "What the fuck, Eliza?" It's he laughs, like he enjoys her upsetting the apple cart. How can you not enjoy it? It's mm-hmm. it's 
she's bringing us a newness to this yes. stale black and white world of yes. money mm-hmm. and privilege mm-hmm. and boringness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. No, it's it's a really fun company number. I thoroughly enjoy the Ascot song, but it wasn't my number three. What is your... Oh, wait. <laughs> I know what your number three is. I don't even need to ask. What is it, Autumn? Get me to the church on time. You got it. I'm getting married in the morning. Ding dong, the bells are gonna chime. Pull out the stopper. Let's have a whopper. But get me to the church on time. I gotta be there in the morning. Spruced up and a pin in me prime. Girls, come and kiss me. Show how you'll miss me. But get me to the church on time. It's such a fun, hummable song. It's kind of like oom pop. I get married in the morning. Ding dong, the bells are gonna chime. Pull out the stopper. Let's have a walk back, but get me to the church on time. Like you gotta look at him, and he's an opportunist too. Like oh yeah, he, this song is. So I would cool. love to hate him. I would yeah. love to hate him because he's detestable <laughs> in so many ways. Yes, but he's also struggling to survive, and that's what makes mm-hmm. him lovable. Yeah. Is mm-hmm. that struggle, and he's mm-hmm. wily. Mm-hmm. He's the Fagin of the piece, right? Yeah, he is. And I mean, what's not great as smart is, as Fagin. Yeah, not as smart, but no, it's funny because the song is really celebratory, but the lyrics are all about a man who's basically being dragged to the altar. And it ties in nicely with this whole thing about him lacking middle class morality. But yet now he's stuck with this dowry of, 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 of money that's basically forced him into a new class without the training Eliza's hat to be there. So he's totally kind of upended himself accidentally and he's being dragged to his wedding. Uh, and it's great. Once again, it's this whole push and pull of this song where you're happily marching this guy basically almost to his execution that he feels, right? Like he's losing himself in his lifestyle. And that's the struggle of this song is, is him begrudgingly getting so pissed drunk He's going to show up to the church, right? And yeah, but how many like in, when you when you start to move out of mm-hmm. your class and start to assimilate into another class, mm-hmm. what what parts of you do you throw away? Yeah, do you settle into a new skin because mm-hmm. the old one is embarrassing? Yeah, I I mean. It sucks. It really is a sucky, sucky thing that we have to. And the more we climb the class, the more armor we put on to fit in. Mm-hmm. So we're not othered by the greedy, you know, upper echelons yeah. of society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah, I still drive a Chevy Cruze. Oh. Mm-hmm. Like, piss off. It can. Mm-hmm. Does it have four wheels? Does it get? Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. we 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 don't mm-hmm. see each other for our full beings. Nope. And that's kind of what I like about 
Higgins and Eliza. They see each yeah. other and they call they see each, each other. They are, yeah. They call, yeah. They call it as it is. They're um, a, they're very much like Beatrice and Benedict. They totally um, are. Yeah. Yes. It's that mm-hmm. relationship. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the last thing I'll point out with the song is it's a great riff on the classic wedding march, but it's brassier yeah. and more bombastic. And that's kind of the joy of that is, is, is that it takes the traditional dun, 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 dun. Like it just kind of ramps it up and become, and this is really your most traditional large ensemble dance, brassy Broadway number. This is where they really, literally, really kind of get into traditional Broadway. Everything else is kind of very British. And this is kind of like, no, we're going full American, like big, bombastic, fun number. And it's great. Like, mm-hmm. once again, it's a great long morning song, but also has such great juxtaposition in it that it, the struggle yeah. in this song is often overlooked because everybody's just, oh, it's like, it's like, no, 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 listen to what he's talking about. Like he's talking oh, yeah. about sneaking and drinking his way through London so he can get to the church and so every wild oat and get pissed drunk so he can marry a woman that he detests, Eliza's stepmother. Mm-hmm. Like it's great. It's it's just a fun So he can have money. Yeah. Which he wants. Yeah. But doesn't want what comes with it. Exactly. Exactly. It's so And fun. why should he want what comes with it? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a smart man. He could be a bookie or something and then yeah. still be quite successful and mm-hmm. still keep his. <laughs> yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting song. It is an interesting song. It's kind of like Last Call, too. Yes. Last Call. Like he's, yeah. he's marching through yeah. on his, yeah. his death walk. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, the song starts with it's just a few more hours. That's all the time you've got. Uh, just a few more hours, four hours before they tie the knot, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's, uh-huh. and it's you know, crazy. last call is actually based on, like when wagons would go through to the gallows. Really? They, they'd yeah, they'd stop at a bar, and the the prisoners would get pissed drunk, and they <laughs> they'd be like, "Last call," mm-hmm. and they'd get on and they'd go to the bar. Interesting. I did not know that fun fact. There you go. Very London thing. It is. All right. So, top three songs you either would skip or would cut. I mean, I don't have many. I have three. Of course you do. I I think I like all the songs in this show. I don't I don't know if I'd cut any. I have to say. Hmm. I listen to all of them. I do. Oh, I agree. Like, I, I, I feel so album. boring in this segment because I'm very, I very rarely have anything. <laughs> gotta be like, more aggressive on him. Gotta, gotta, gotta get in touch with that more American side. Canadian. You're, you're very Canadian. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I also after doing Rent and really thinking about our episode on Rent, I, I was like, well, you were honest yeah. in Rent. No, you were honest. Yeah, I know, I know. But it's my, my personal feelings. And my personal feeling on this one is I like all of the music in this. That's fair. Okay. I mean, I think I know one of the ones you're going to cut. Okay. All right. On the Street Where You Live. That was my number one. I have often walked down the street before. 
But the pavement always stayed beneath my feet before. All at once am I several stories high, knowing I'm on the street where you live. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, like for me, it's very generic. And it's your typical love ballad crooner song. I can see why so many artists have covered this song over the years because it can be sung by anyone at any time. In a musical, that's not good because it means it's lacking character specificity, which is what Sondheim talks about all the time. Also, wait for a sec. Mm -hmm. Here's my rebuttal to that. Mm -hmm. Freddie is generic. So, therefore, Mm -hmm. he needed a generic love song to show his apathy and complacency Mm -hmm. for life. Mm -hmm. Like I have often walked down so the street before. Who cares? Next. Like for me, what I, what I what I was wanting in this moment, if you're gonna give Freddie a song, it should really be a a good case. Because I mean, apparently Lerlo really did make an effort to try and make Freddie a more bigger threat to Eliza and Higgins relationship. So for me, I'm like, you should have had a song in here that really gave Higgins a run for his money. Versus going to the generic love bout. And it's interesting because Lerner and Lowe seem to have this problem when writing love songs. Because this is very much like If I Ever I Would Leave You in Camelot is that same croonery song, which once again, Robert Goulet sings it beautifully. But it's one of those things of it's it, 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 it unevens the scale, right? Because you have If Ever I Would Leave You versus How to Handle a, a Woman on the Street Where You Live versus I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face. I know, but you have to look at the time. Yeah. Like the time, you would think that the anticipation or the expectation of any young woman Mm -hmm. would be to have a devoted, Mm -hmm. loving, kind Mm -hmm. husband. And it's exactly what Lancelot and Freddie offer, Mm -hmm. right? This kind of doting, all consumed Mm -hmm. by the vision of you, mm-hmm. love, right? Mm-hmm. And then the women, the, the women are actually given more agency because they're like, oh, I'm going to subvert the narrative of what society wants of me. Mm-hmm. And I want the dangerous one. So mm-hmm. it actually, I think it needs to be there mm-hmm. because it sets them up as a bigger heroine, a bigger... Mm-hmm. Like they, yeah. they get the fact that she chooses more the whole thing, yeah, yeah. We get to see more of mm-hmm. you know, their well, Guinevere's the opposite story of Eliza, right? I mean, a lot Guinevere yeah. starts with Kerr Higgins, ultimately gives him up for Freddie, and, and, and ends up in a convent <laughs> because she loses both of them in the end. Eliza yeah. does the opposite route where she has the opportunity to go with a Freddie, but she chooses a Higgins. Yeah, but I think it's interesting. I think, you know, yeah, I, yeah, you're right. What if it does go the opposite way, which is stupid? Well, it's tragic, right? I mean, that's just a musical comedy in a tragedy. The tragedy of Camelot is Guinevere's choice ultimately dooms the kingdom as well as herself. Because, I mean, think about it. Guinevere starts with, like, I want to have sex, I want to have love and adventure. And where she end up with a shaved head in a convent. <laughs> like, <laughs> she has the ultimate downfall 
of that show. Then you put that together. Yeah. An adventure, one way or the other. Yeah, it's an adventure, that's for sure. But yes, no, like, on the street where you live, and, like, I could see why Mary Martin wasn't overly impressed when, like, they do a presentation and she hears this song. Because it's like, oh. But yeah, like, yeah, I mean, my last note is that this is where Rodgers and Hammerstein did well, was with their love songs, they, they were able to incorporate struggle mm-hmm. into them. Right. This is where Rodgers and Hammerstein did better than Lerner and Love. Lerner and Love did better on the character solidity stuff, and their women in particular, women characterization. Rodgers and Hammerstein did better at figuring out the whole love song thing. I don't know. I Look, Guinevere is fine, but she's no Eliza. No, well, it's a different character, right? Different class, but different character. You, you also have, yeah, that's why Guinevere is significantly more boring mm-hmm. and goes the opposite way because she's bored. But how could she be bored with a Higgins or a King Arthur? There's no struggle. True. There's no appreciation for what you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, this man fell into my lap. Oh, a hotter one fell into my lap. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, like, you have to look at, you have to look at the source material, too. <laughs> like, you're dealing with King Arthur's Round Table, which is so old. It's older than dust, right? Versus Pygmalion, which was, like... Which is old as dust, too. Nah, but, but Shaw, but they're adapting Shaw. Story. Yeah, they're adapting Shaw, which is a little bit more modern. Shaw or the Penguin. Yeah. <laughs> um, was very feisty and very, very ahead of its time. Yes. Yes. All right. Okay. So, yeah, that's my number one. My okay. next one is with a little bit of luck. Lord above gave man an arm of iron So he could do his job and never shirk The Lord above gave man an arm of iron But with a little bit of luck With a little bit of luck Someone else will do the blinking work With a little bit And it's a fine song to introduce Mr. Doolittle, but it's not one that I go back to. And I'll often kind of just skip it if I'm just kind of. They just want another big production number. Yeah, well, exactly. I feel like this song could easily be removed and summarized with a little bit of dialogue. This song doesn't scream essential. It's the whole thing of when you can't speak, you sing, right? There needs to be that drive, that character specificity for it. And this is more just like. Okay, it's there. It, it, it sets up that he's a bit wily and he's kind of grifting his way yeah. through life. Uh, but it feels more like Lorello needed a song for Halloway in a way to introduce Eliza's father and his low morals. And they're like, we'll give him a song we'll, we'll, um, with his gents and that's it. What like, it's a fine song. A song between him and Eliza. They never, they, yeah, it's true. They don't. They never have a song together. It wouldn't be great to have them have a duet when she's like out a, asking for money. After she's gotten the money from Higgins. The first yeah. time when he gives her the crowns, right? And it's a yeah. lot of money. Like they would yeah, be a little fat. Yes, that would be a much better way than yeah. with a little bit of luck. Because this just feels like the classic kind of English, you know, chim chimmery, chim chimmery, chim chim that type of thing where it's like, it's fine, but it's no number I go back to, but you gotta listen to it. Yeah, no. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. My number three, though, is one that may surprise you. And it's a hymn to him. Why can't a woman be more like a man? 
Men are so honest, so thoroughly square, eternally noble, historically fair, who when you win will always give your back a pat. Why can't a woman be like that? Why does everyone do what the others do? Can't a woman learn to use her head? Why do they do everything their mothers do? Why don't they grow up like their fathers instead? And this song I put on my list because it's repetitive. It doesn't set, it doesn't really set Higgins up for his potential for change that comes later on in Act Two. This yeah. song is just kind of like I'm an ordinary man in Act One. It's where Higgins is ranting about how he doesn't understand and is frustrated by women. Is basically what it is. Uh, and it's kind of reductive to the ending because it then puts a lot of pressure on that last song to make the big emotional character leap to make the uh, ending pay off for Higgins's transformation. Like, that makes sense. yeah, mm-hmm. like, yeah, yeah like, uh, for me, like, if you get a really good Higgins, I've grown accustomed to her face makes that leap. Like, you got to have someone who's really strong and a good actor to make that leap because they have no groundwork built up for them to make that flip of a switch yeah. at the end, right? Like, well, uh, uh, you think, like, right before I've heard Pressure to Your Face, you have uh, what's the one? Um, sh- uh, not Show Me. Um, they'll be spring every year without you. Without you. There'll be spring every year without you. England still will be here without you. There'll be fruit on the tree and a shore by the sea. There'll be crumpets and tea without you. Art and music will thrive without you. Somehow Keats will survive without you. And there still will be rain on that plain down in Spain. Even that will remain without you. Without you, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, once again, that's Eliza kind of being defined and saying, Fuck off, Higgins! Like, like the year, the, the, the world doesn't revolve around you, um, right? Exactly. So, oh. and then Higgins leaves and goes, "Damn, damn, damn!" Right? And there's no, I mean, that whole song, like "Request Your Face," it has a lot of groundwork it's got to cover to make that transformation real. And Lunar and Low miss the opportunity to do some seed planting of him mm-hmm. coming, like having some moments of, oh, let a woman in your life. And maybe there are some positives. But no, like she's messed me up and now I'm mad. Like they could have done a little bit more groundwork in there to make that leap of a character change at the end a bit more smooth versus like, surprise, at the end, he's somehow changed his ways about her, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's had the epiphany via, via, via audio recording. Yeah, we right? get a lot of him pontificating about women and frustration. His but it's but it's the it. same repetition of pontificating. Mm-hmm. Like it's like yeah. I mean I like his uh, his opening song of why can't the English speak because that's interesting. That's different yeah. pontificating. But in I'm an ordinary man and a hymn to him are very similar tracks. And even it makes sense why they're similar because he only wrote this in eight days when Harrison was like I need another song for my character in Act Two, and Leonard was like Okay, uh, let's just take the conversation we had where you were saying that you wish a woman could be more like a man. Uh, and so that'll be your new song. Like, like you can tell that one's not as matured and developed as, say, his act one. He should have just done his a reprise. 
maybe that would have been just fine. I don't yeah. know. But yeah, for me, I just go, it's a fine. Why thing. reinvent the wheel? Why yeah. reinvent the wheel? Because he's hit Rex Harrison and you pay big money for him. Either way, those are my three songs that I, I either would yeah. skip or would cut. Okay. Like, they're not bad songs, but they're just, they just don't quite, they're not as, as high level. There's as better people. options for them. Yes. There's Learner, better ways to drop them. Can you hear us? Papa, can you Papa, hear me? Can you hear me? <laughs> All yeah. right. Um, let's get into the last question. Does this musical still have a place today? Should it be revived? Yes. That's a resounding yes. I think <laughs> it's a classic that you, you can do interesting things with. Mm -hmm. There is a contemporary flair to it because mm -hmm. it's based on the Shaw source material, right? Mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. no wakiness to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We can confront, we can, mm -hmm. you know, diversify casting and and mm -hmm. do some like great new things mm -hmm. with this piece, mm -hmm. which is exciting. I think, yes, and I think it's a, a really good examination of class. I think, mm -hmm. you know, what we have to sacrifice of ourselves to join and move up the ladder. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. How we how we sell pieces of ourselves, mm -hmm. you know? And how do we not do that? Mm -hmm. And I, I think just, you know, the slippers... There needs to be a choice at the end about those stupid slippers. But there, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's my note is this is an iconic piece. It has many memorable tunes in it. So it's going to be revived one way or the other. But what's great about this older piece is that there is a lot of directorial breathing room for new interpretation mm -hmm. and casting choices. Like, yeah. unlike other pieces that are kind of like, dare I say, a carousel that are kind of restrictive mm -hmm. a bit in what they can, in like what you can do with them. This piece has the base of, as you said, casting choices. Like England was very diverse. We could easily get a BIPOC Eliza Doolittle in there, a BIPOC Higgins, whoever. I mean, a, a Freddie from India, if you want, could be mm -hmm. anything. Like, like casting alone, there's a lot of flexibility. And then, like, just character choices. Like, much as the original version was very heavy on Rex Harrison and Higgins. There's a lot of room with Eliza. I mean, she's still a very modern female character. Oh, yeah. um, like, even from 1950 to now, like, just all her songs, I mean, you go through them, love her, um, all I want to just you wait to I could have danced all night to show me to without you. Like, the journey you build into this character is so rich, and there's so much meat and potatoes in this piece. That you awesome. can really make good choices with all oh. characters, whether it's Freddie, Mrs. Higgins, Mrs. Pierce, even even Colonel Pickering or Mr. Doolittle. Like, there's a lot of wiggle room in this piece to really yes. massage and bend these characters to new versions. So for me, I go oh, yeah. absolutely bring it back. I would love to see a new film version of this that you could really. I would with. too, actually. I feel I'd... like like it's a nice film. Don't me wrong, it's 64, but it's it's um, it's Hollywood studio. It's very pristine. It's not it's not dirty London. It's very like, nice. It's a it's very not nice London. It's not no. London at this time. No, it's London at the time, even the upper classes darling, mm -hmm. very, very naughty. Yes, exactly. Naughty, naughty. They just covered it well. Yeah. Victorian England was for the upper classes a performance. 
yes. must have been exhausting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Autumn, I think that is it. Um, Bring back My Fair Lady again. If yes. you haven't seen it before, take a look. Don't just assume that it is an old, doughty piece. There is a lot of meat and potatoes in this to give a really good yes. run of its money. There's a reason why this is widely proclaimed as the best musical comedy. And I can see why. Like, this huh. definitely ranks up there. High. But it's also full of tragedy. Tons of tragedy. Women if done everything. right. If done right, the, Eliza's return to Covet Gardens as a lady mm-hmm. should be heartbreaking when she walks huh. amongst those other flower girls and sees that she can never go back to being among them. They're, the tragedy of that moment should make you weep because you realize just how stuck this woman is between two worlds now. And she is displaced. She is totally displaced. It's great. She is um, without, without a home. Yep. It's, it's, it's exactly that. So check it out, everybody. Mm-hmm. Autumn, let's wrap this up. Where can people find and follow you? All the places. Littlewoodsmith.com. Mm-hmm. At Timberbeast Productions, at Littlewoodsmith, at Autumn mm-hmm. DM Smith, mm-hmm. at Leslie Honest. Yep. All the things, all the times. Exactly. Exactly. Follow our theme music composer, Mr. Brody Well, on all listening platforms. Father Flozis. He's got lots of great new music coming out after his hit albums of Home Decor and Locusts. So check it on out there. Check out our Patreon page where there'll be a lot of great deleted scenes from this episode, I guarantee. From <laughs> talks about the Gilded Age to the Will Smith incident at the Oscars. Oh, Lots of good stuff you'll want to check out on our Patreon And we'll be doing some more live movie musical commentaries. Maybe we'll do the 1964 film adaptation uh, one, one month. But you gotta mm-hmm. join yeah. and let us know what you want us to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, check it on okay. out. Find and follow me at Mackenzie Horner, all social media platforms. You can check out all my antics with Kappa Hemlock Theater, where we're now getting invited to some live theater opening nights to review them. We just did a great review of Transcendance uh, production of A Grim Night, which was a dance piece that was fantastic, done at the Great Old Hall in on Queen Street in Dufferin. In Toronto, it was fantastic. A superb dance piece. So check it on out. We're doing lots of fun theater things like that. But until then, everybody, stay tuned for our season finale episode. Autumn, give them a hint of what it could be. You know what? I can't. I gotta go spend my night mooning over you. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Ramada Lama dinky dinky dong. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Go back to beauty school, Autumn. Go back to beauty school. I'm a dropout. <laughs> there you go, everybody. All right. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, we could have danced all night. We could have danced all night. all night and still have begged for more. Yes. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? <laughs> <laughs>